the History Show with Maz Duncan. Good evening. On this week's programme... People engaged in empire because it provided an economic opportunity doesn't mean that people were buying into the ideology of the British Empire. And that's as true today as it was in the past. Ireland and Empire. Jane Allmeyer on how Britain and Ireland reckon with the legacy of an imperial past. Plus, when Harry Houdini came to Belfast. The guys in the Harland and Wolfe shipyard said, well, we could build a crate around Houdini to see could he escape from it. We'll hear about the illusionist's time in Ireland where he performed one of his toughest escapes. To begin this evening, though, we're looking at the origin of one of the world's most well-known buildings, the White House in Washington, D.C. It's one of the most recognisable landmarks in the world, yet few know the name or the story of the Irishman responsible for its design and construction. Born in 1755, James Hoban spent his childhood years in Desart, Cuffsgrange, County Kilkenny, the son of a tenant farmer. As a teenager, he moved to Dublin and studied at the Dublin Society Drawing School and later emigrated to the United States in 1785, a couple of years after the end of the American Revolutionary War. The architect's life and work are the subject of a new anthology called James Hoban, designer and builder of the White House. It's edited by Stuart D. McLaurin, president of the White House Historical Association. And earlier, Stuart spoke to our reporter, Colm Flynn. Stuart, it's incredible that this is one of the most iconic buildings in the world, and yet... Very few people know the name James Hoban, particularly here in Ireland. Who was James Hoban? Well, you're exactly right. It's amazing that this man's work is known the world over by three words, the White House. But his name of James Hoban is little known. He was an Irish-American that developed his skills in Dublin, working for uh, under the tutelage of Thomas Ivory, a renowned architect for the t- at the time at the Dublin Society School of Architectural Drawing. He worked on several prominent uh, buildings there in Dublin, uh, Linster House, the Newcomen Bank, the Royal Exchange. In fact, uh, you, when I was in Dublin recently and walked up on Linster House, you, you see the visual of the White House, at least I did in my mind's eye, uh, the places that inspired this uh, Irishman who came to America and was accomplished in Charleston, South Carolina, in the American South. He met George Washington there. George Washington, as president, was on a southern tour of the states. How did the two of them come to meet originally? Well, it was he was in Charleston. Uh, George Washington was in Charleston. And he, as he traveled, he would meet uh, many people in the area. Hoban had already been instrumental in building several buildings in Charleston that Washington saw and he liked. And it was quite common in Europe at the time to build large stone houses and stone buildings was not that common in America. But Hoban had been successful with this in Charleston. Washington wanted a stone house for the president's house, not to be reminiscent of a European palace, but something that would be substantial, respected by European capitals, and more appropriate for an American president. They were both Masons, and I think that their rapport that they developed in the conversation about Uh, Those interests was probably uh, influential, but uh, Washington was a man who knew what he wanted, and he wanted someone that was aligned with him and would carry out his vision 
for the White House. And uh, Washington was influential, but he also let Hoban uh, do what Hoban do, did best, and that was to pull together the team of people that, that, built, that built the White House. You said that Hoban was successful already in Charleston, and but this would have been the biggest project of his career, presumably. Oh, by far, by far. Uh, the records of his coming to the United States in the mid-1870s, he advertised in Philadelphia, he advertised in Charleston. He partnered uh, in South Carolina with a gentleman by the name of Pierce Purcell, who we believe may have been a, a distant relative of his that had come to Charleston, and they built things together. But uh, Hoban had quite a name. You know, it was interesting. I think George Washington wanted someone with a name, but not too much of a name, uh, to build the White House. Yeah, I read somewhere in an interview an author talking about him and said that although he was Irish, he very much had American qualities. Extremely ambitious, a mover and a shaker. He knew who to rub shoulders with to rise and progress in his career. I, I think that's exactly right. And it's interesting, his legacy here in Washington with the White House, but he also built the first church of, of any kind outside of Georgetown, which is to the west of downtown Washington. At that time, it would have been a little too far for uh, people to go and worship. So he built St. Patrick's Church, the first Catholic church, first church of any kind in the federal city at that time. He was um, uh, instrumental in creating the um, Masons Masonic Lodge here in town. He had a legacy beyond just the White House. Of course, nothing compares to the White House in terms of that. Now, I've often wondered if if he had any idea or any clue what the magnitude of that would be. He knew he was building the president's house. I was wondering that if there was any sign from his writings or his letters or documents left that he realized just the significance of what he was embarking on, that it would become such a, a huge part of history, this building. We don't know. His home in Washington was burned. And with it went most of his papers. We have very little left in his own hand, uh, just a couple of documents. Interestingly enough, what does remain, uh, several projects both in Dublin and then here in the United States, he chose not to accept cash for payment for those projects. He accepted a medal because he knew he could show that medal to the next customer, if you will, and it demonstrated his success in a previous project where the money would be spent. But the metal he used almost as a resume, or we would use today. And that was very wise, I think. That's the type of thing that would have impressed uh, George Washington to be shown something such as that. So we have those medals. Those remain here at the uh, um, American History Museum in Washington. But in terms of his papers and records, uh, there's virtually nothing. It's, it's very tragic that it was lost to fire. Do you know, was he a family man? Did he have a wife and kids? He did. In fact, uh, we have one image of James Hoban. It's on the cover of this book, uh, James Hoban, Designer and Builder of the White House. It's a small wax image, just a few inches tall, and it's the only known image of him, and it's in the White House collection. But there is a photograph, or a, a drawing rather, of his son, who looks very much like him, or looked very much like him. And oftentimes, you will see that image in uh, documents representing, represented as James Hoban, the father, but it wasn't. It was James Hoban, the son. We know that he did have uh, direct Hoban descendants uh, that were around for several generations. In fact, there is a Hoban family plot here in Mount Olivet Cemetery in Washington. We've recently restored that family plot. There are some Hobans around still today. We were contacted recently by an architecture firm in London that was by the name Hoban, and they claimed to be some 
uh, relational connectivity to our James Hoban, uh, but we're not aware of any direct personal descendants that, that we are engaged with uh, here in the United States today. Now, Stuart, of course, things back then were done a lot differently than they're done today. And we know that many enslaved people were used to build the White House and Hoban would have overseen many of these slaves. In fact, I read accounts of him bringing his own slaves with him to work on the project. So I suppose the question is, as Irish people who are learning about James Hoban for the first time and hearing his name, is it a name we should celebrate and be proud of as the young Irish immigrant who did incredibly well in his profession in the United States? Or should we be ashamed of the fact that he bought and sold slaves and used them for his own prosperity? That's a really important question, and it reflects the mode that we are, uh, with issues we are still wrestling with in this country today. And it is certainly not something to be proud of that he managed or owned slaves. The stone for the White House, as I mentioned, George Washington wanted a stone house. Well, that was quarried about 30 miles downriver, down the Potomac River, and slaves were used to quarry that stone and to row it upriver, if you can imagine, for 30 miles, offload it and bring it to where the White House was built. So it was not an easy task by any means. And this was all really brought to our attention in May of 2016 when former First Lady Michelle Obama gave a commencement speech, and then later that summer, the Democratic Convention in Philadelphia, where she said, I wake up every morning in a house that was built by slaves. So we spent about four years doing the research on this, and it's still underway. Tragic to know nine of our first 12 American presidents owned slaves that lived and worked with them in the White House. But to your your question about should he be celebrated or not honor him for his legacy? I think his legacy as the designer and builder of the White House is secure in history. But I think the light that has been shown on these horrific issues, which were not unique to James Hoban, there were many, many Americans, many, many leaders, many, many presidents who, uh, it's a black mark on our history, a really uh, evil element of, of, of world history, but it's something that we have the responsibility to teach about, and uh, we do not want these people to be forgotten. I saw an interview with you once, Stuart, where you were talking about all the research you did for this book and researching the different stories about James Hoban, and even going back to Ireland and not only going to Dublin, but going to his home county of County Kilkenny, and you said that you felt like you knew James Hoban personally. So when I say the name James Hoban, what do you think of? Well, I think uh, how amazing that this one man came from across the ocean, had no idea what he would encounter, never dreaming that his name would be perpetually associated with the symbol of American freedom and democracy around the world. Probably at his death, he had no idea that his legacy would be such. Uh, certainly, he didn't know that we would exist and that we would publish a book about him, but I think it's a symbol of uh, encouragement and hope for people who uh, want to pursue uh, their dream and their field and uh, the impact that they can have. I think it's also an example of uh, nobody is a perfect soul. Everybody has a dark and bad side, and, and we all try and we all work. And um, he was a man of faith, and so I'm sure he 
uh, had to wrestle with those things that were in, in his own life, and his own faith. And there was some example later in his life where he did speak against slavery, but yet he still owned them and sold them. So when I think of him, it's not one thought. It's a very complex matrix of, of, of thought. But I do think that he is a man that should be recognized for the legacy that he has in building this structure. And, you know, this is one small white stone building that's the home to the president of the United States and his family. It's the office to the president and his staff. It's the ceremonial stage upon which our country welcomes its most important visitors. And it's a museum where 500 to 600,000 people a year go through and see this museum of American history. This one man conceptualized and built that. And he was an Irishman. And he came here and he worked his trade well. And he has an important legacy in White House history. Colin Flynn was reporting there. He was talking to Stuart D. McLaurin about the life and work of architect James Hoban. Stuart is the editor of the new book, James Hoban, Designer and Builder of the White House. And by the way, the White House Historical Association is offering free shipping to Irish customers purchasing the book from their site until June. We'll put a link on our own website. After the break, I'll be joined by Professor Jane Allmeyer to talk about her recent lecture series, Ireland, Empire and the Early Modern World. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. In a recent article in The Guardian by President Michael D. Higgins, he talked about reflecting on the more uncomfortable aspects of Ireland and Britain's intertwined history. He wrote, I am struck by a disinclination in both academic and journalistic accounts to critique empire and imperialism. And that's what we're going to talk about now, how both our countries deal with an imperial past. Ireland, Empire and the Early Modern World is the title of this year's annual James Ford Lecture Series from Oxford University. The focus of the six lectures is on Ireland and the First English Empire from uh, about the middle of the 16th century to the middle of the 18th century. But they also look to other European and global empires for meaningful comparisons and contrasts and explore how we wrestle with the legacy of empire in modern times. The lectures were delivered by Professor Jane Allmeyer of Trinity College Dublin. Jane, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thanks, Miles. Tell us a little bit more, uh, first of all, about the lectures themselves and about the kind of response that you got. Unfortunately, you didn't have the great pleasure of delivering them in Oxford in person. You had to do it from the uh, the hub in, in Trinity. Uh, Miles, you're right. Uh, the pandemic meant that they were delivered for the first time ever. In uh, They've been going since the 1890s. And I'm only the second person from the Republic of Ireland invited to give the Ford. So it was a big moment. And sadly, it all happened uh, virtually. But actually, it means they're so much more accessible. So, uh, I mean, there was great audiences when I was giving them. And then they've now moved on to the RTE uh, history website. And I heard yesterday over 10,000 people have downloaded them just in the last couple of weeks. And I think that's telling us something about the topic and the timeliness of it. But as you know yourself, Miles, there's no face, I mean, face to face, there's no substitute Mm. for that debate discussion that you would have if they had been delivered live. So I did miss that much as I'm delighted by just how, how many people now are listening to them. 
yeah, ten thousand wouldn't probably would not fit into any of the even the larger lecture <laughs> halls in, uh, in in Trinity College. Definitely um, not. Have you been Have you been getting much of a response? I mean, because yeah. they were online, you, there's more of an opportunity for for people to respond directly online. You know, there's been a phenomenal response to them, and it's been very interesting to see. So, on the one hand, um, the response from my academic colleagues has been, well, you know, it's great that we're now looking at empire through fresh eyes. We're bringing the whole discussion back to the 16th and 17th century. From the wider sort of public, I think empire is so core to our identity that it's been interesting to see some people feeling clearly very uncomfortable by the discussion and with the discussion. And I wrote an op-ed in the Irish Times at the end of December that really created a very extreme response. I don't know about you, Miles, but I'd never been trolled on, on Twitter before. But it really brought out the extremists, the right wing nationalists, the white supremacists. It brought out the misogynists. Obviously, I'm a woman speaking, but I was born in Africa. And I think, you know, people just that people made assumptions there. And so it brought out the racists, but also Olmeyer. I think people, you know, it's a Jewish sounding name. So it brought out the anti-Semites as well. So it was absolutely extraordinary. I've never experienced anything quite like it. And of course, when you see that happening, it just makes you even more determined to speak out and sort of stand up to the bullies. But it also shows me that history really matters. And that's why it's critical we have, you know, these conversations. And what was also interesting for every, you know, grumpy email or uh, a grumpy letter to the Irish Times, there were tens of people writing saying, I'm so glad that you're actually helping us acknowledge and engage in a respectful way with issues around empire. Maybe my uncle, you know, served in the Malayan civil service or I had a, an aunt who was a nurse in the British army or, you know, a, a father who, who served in uh, India or what have you. And so lots and lots of people then shared their own personal stories with me, Miles. And that's always such a privilege because we all have our own histories. And I think just opening it up and very much part of that decade of commemoration, people, I think, have a maturity about engaging with empire in all, you know, it, but it's a tricky one and, and a very complex uh, subject. Because people are realising, as you say, the decade of commemoration, people have looked and discovered that, yes, I had a great grand uncle who was in the First World War. That was unexpected or more expected. I had a great grand uncle or a grand uncle or whatever who was in the the War of Independence. But uh, one thing people probably wouldn't have been searching for was the extent to which any of their ancestors had been in any way involved in empire and probably as many would have been as those two other phenomena combined, wouldn't you say? Uh, Very much so. And of course, people engaged in empire because it provided an economic opportunity. My mother was a teacher in uh, what was then Northern Rhodesia. And the only reason she went was because she needed a job. This is Ireland in the 1950s. And so there was that sense of economic opportunity. It doesn't mean that people were buying into the ideology of the British Empire. And that's as true today as it was in the past. 
a lot was driven by economic necessity, the old adage of, you know, taking the king's shilling. And I think when we look back in time, say in the mid-19th century, two-thirds of the British army in India was made up of Irish Catholics. And they were there simply because they had no other opportunities. But the Connacht Rangers mutiny took place not in Ireland, but in India. Exactly, exactly. And the truth is that Daly died uh, because the British could not afford for their army in India to mutiny because so many of them were Irish. So, you know, I think here it just adds a layer of complexity uh, to all of this. And obviously we've had discussions around Amritsar. I was very struck. The anniversary was the 13th of April, 1919. So obviously 2019. And when the story was broadcast on Irish radio, I think people were just in disbelief about the fact that the commander uh, that day of the Punjab, but more importantly in the Jalanwala Bag, were people from Ireland or of Irish provenance. And Reginald Dyer, who you know was educated in, in Middleton, he was the man who oversaw the massacre. And the lieutenant governor of the Punjab was Michael O'Dwyer, a, a Catholic from Tipperary. Um, and this sort of challenges the master narrative of the Irish as victims, not active perpetrators of atrocities like this. And you know, but that makes us feel very uncomfortable as well. And obviously, there's been, a, you know, a reaction to this. But somebody like O'Dwyer was educated at Balliol College in Oxford, which, of course, where Boris Johnson and many members of the, the Tory cabinet were, were educated, which was the intellectual epicentre of empire in uh, the 19th and 20th centuries. So so I think it's very, just very important that we recognise this, we're aware of it, and that we have, as I say, an informed and, and respectful discussion and debate about it. And does that offer us a get-out clause for O'Dwyer? Oh, he went to Oxford. He was a Balliol boy. So that's the get-out clause because we can't argue that all of the imperial atrocities visited on India, Malaya, etc., where the Irish were involved. Oh, it was the Anglo-Irish. It was the Protestants. It wasn't the Catholics. Well, I think, again, in this case, obviously he was a Catholic. And I think the thing that we have to recognise, Miles, is that Catholics were involved in, if you want, the imperial venture from the 16th century when Ireland itself was a colony. It was England's first colony. And I would have worked extensively on Irish Catholics who would have been key to this whole anglicising process in Ireland from its, you know, as I say, from the late 16th century. And then many of whom would have been very aggressive imperialists themselves. And we see this particularly in the Caribbean, where the Irish may have gone out as indentured servants, but within sometimes a decade become uh, very, very successful slave masters themselves. So, you know, again, it's a very complicated story. And and I think, you know, it's not that, you know, you want to uh, challenge identity myths, but I think it's very important that we're not bound by our history, that we have, if you want, the maturity to, to bow to it and to actually understand it in all of its complexity. 
Now, obviously, we've been going through a process of addressing and learning from the darker parts of our history, you know, with the decade of commemoration, although the darkest part is yet to come. And it'll be very interesting to see how we manage to navigate the Civil War. How do you contrast or compare what we do and our approach, the Irish approach to history, to, say, the British approach to history and legacy of empire? So uh, that's a great question. And I'm going to speak to the British, but I'd also then maybe like to reflect a little bit on the Indian approach to empire, because I think that actually is a more meaningful one in some respects. But I've been very struck. Obviously, I was giving the Ford lectures and I was to give them in Oxford, the intellectual epicentre of empire in the 19th century, in an auditorium that overlooks the statue of Cecil Rhodes. And I was to be a fellow of All Souls College, which would be home to the Codrington Library, which is about to be renamed because of it basically was built on uh, riches accrued through slavery and enslaved peoples in in the Caribbean. So I was actually, um, I'm, I'm disappointed in a way, I didn't have an opportunity to have that conversation there because I think that what we're seeing in, in the UK, in Oxford, in Bristol, in Glasgow, in other words, universities that were very much at the epicentre of empire, as indeed my own university, Trinity, was, that they're having to come to terms with that in, I think, a very mature and a very uh, reflectful way. And they're they're actually responding to it as, you know, as I think in a way that gives us all a great sense of, well, we have to come to terms with the past. What then at the other extreme, we have, if you want, the British tabloids who are vilifying uh, historians as, you know, public enemies number one because they're somehow betraying the great British Empire and, as I say, being vilified for it. Whereas I think here in Ireland, actually, we're approaching it in a much more pragmatic way. On the one hand, of course, we have to acknowledge that we were very much you know, victims of imperialism and there's no escaping the fact that imperialism is about the exercise of violence and extreme violence in an Irish case, but also then recognising that, you know, Irish people, both Catholics and Protestants of, you know, both, if you want, Gaelic provenance as well as Anglo-English uh, provenance, were also active perpetrators. Uh, you know, we've been able to, I think, to approach that in a much more balanced, a much more nuanced way, although it's not easy. Whereas I just, I'm not seeing that apart from within the universities. And also, I think, obviously, some of the museums are having to come to terms with this, including, of course, the Hunt Museum most recently uh, in an Irish context. So, you know, you've got that spectrum of response. I do think in Ireland that we are uh, handling it. And I think, actually, this discussion of empire would not have been possible except for what we have been going through in terms of the decade of commemorations. And I agree, you know, the next, the final couple of years are the most difficult, but I've been hugely impressed by how we've approached it. I want to say a few words though, Miles, if if you don't mind about how it's in India. I was very struck. So a lot of my work now is comparative work on Ireland and India. And the founding father of Bombay was an Irishman called Gerald Anger. And the the treasure and the riches that he made in India, he remitted in the 1660s and 1670s and allowed his brother, who was the Earl of Longford, to develop Anger Street. So it was the first suburb in Dublin. And the next time you walk down Anger Street, remember that Anger Street was developed on the back of empire. He was a member of the East India Company and the governor of Surat and the first governor of Bombay or the first 
main governor of Bombay. Anyway, to cut a long story short, that relationship between Ireland and India has a very, very long history. And for the most part, the Irish were servants of empire in India, whether in terms of the administration or the army. But then, of course, with the rise of the constitutional uh, you know, home rule, we see the Indian home rule movement looking for inspiration to what was going in in Ireland. The same with the Land League. Somebody like uh, Gandhi looked very much to Michael Davitt and the whole Land League movement for inspiration and obviously Parnell and the Home Rulers. And then, of course, increasingly, it was looking to Irish republicanism, to Pierce, to Collins and others. And the Irish, if you want, taught the Indians their ABC of freedom fighting. So it was very interesting for me working on Ireland and India and living there for extended periods of time because on the one hand, the Indians were very accepting of the Irish because they saw us as being victims, if you want, as well. They felt much less comfortable when obviously the Irish were actively engaged, especially in the Amritsar uh, massacre. And so I could see this uh, sort of unfolding when I was talking about these, obviously I lectured all over India, including in places like Aligarh, which would be the big Muslim university, as well as in Delhi and in Mumbai. And, you know, there was this ambivalence. Um, And I actually think that we in Ireland have come to terms with our imperial legacy much more than colleagues in India have, both in terms of the scholarly world and then the the more general public. And I suppose that's a product of time. India, obviously, independence came in 1947. So, you know, for them, it's still extraordinarily raw. I'm not saying it's raw in an Irish context, but I mean, it is. But I mean, we've moved on. And I, I think the other thing is partition. We always have to remember that the legislation used to partition Ireland in 1920 was the exact same legislation used to partition India. And it was interesting that Jinnah, who was the head of the Muslim League, actually invoked Ireland and said, you know, we want to have the same treatment that Ireland has had in terms of partition. And it was Nehru and Gandhi who were saying, no, we don't want to create little Ulsters in the subcontinent. And of course, that's exactly what happened. But that legacy of partition in an Indian and Pakistani context is so brutal and so bloody that there would be no hope, certainly in our lifetimes, of India and Pakistan ever being reunited. It's a very different contemporary context. Whereas I think the context here in Ireland is different. And I think we're able to have very meaningful conversations about a potential shared future on our island in a way that isn't possible in the Indian subcontinent. So, I mean, it's again, very interesting, uh, different ways of, of dealing with it. But the most important thing is that we do deal with it, because if we don't deal with it, it will always be there and will be a running sore. So, again, I think this conversation is hugely important that, you know, to quote, the president that historical amnesia is not healthy we absolutely need to have these discussions but they need to be informed ones and they need to be done with respect not trolling on twitter obviously um so let me take you back to you know a period that you're obviously very comfortable with and in fact to beyond that to well before that period and cite two individuals, both apologists for empire in their own way. They may not have seen it like that as such, but philosophers of empire. The first 
the delightful Geraldus Cambrensis, Gerald of Wales, and uh, the second far more celebrated Edmund Spencer, not celebrated necessarily for anything to do with Ireland, but uh, to do with his, uh, his poetry. Tell me about their roles in, in emperor, one in the 12th uh, century and then one in the 16th century. Well, they're both very important. So uh, one of the lectures in the Fords is called Laboratory for Empire. In other words, the way that Ireland actually becomes a playground where ideas and policies are explored and then later exported. And we see this very clearly both with Geraldus Cambrensis and with Edmund Spencer, where we see an ideology, if you want, of empire being developed. And they're both very important because Geraldus Cambrensis, obviously he was writing in the 12th century, but his work was extensively republished in the 16th and 17th century and profoundly influenced those who were colonising and anglicising Ireland in the early modern period, and especially Edmund Spencer. So he, if you want, lifted wholesale these ideas that Cambrensis had, that the Irish were barbaric, they were uncivil, they were savages. And then, of course, he added his own special twist, which is, of course, that the Irish were pagans and Catholics. And what we have in Edmund Spencer is pure racism. And it really becomes the classic exponent of racism, especially his view of the state of Ireland, which called for the wholesale destruction of the Irish, along with our culture, society, economy, and invited England to enjoy a monopoly over the exercise of violence. And they use this word civilise, to civilise or to anglicise. And they would, you know, civilise Ireland, inverted commas, by making it English. And then having purged, if you want, Ireland of its Irishness, the country then would be colonised by English settlers who would be then responsible for the erection of the political, economic, social framework that was considered necessary to support a civil and Protestant faith. And that meant... You know, the building of towns, roads, bridges, houses, gardens, you know, it was a very physical as well as obviously cultural in terms of the English language, the English legal system, English agricultural uh, practices. And what's so important about Spencer and this aggressive imperialism that he was touting was it profoundly shaped the mindsets of his immediate circle, but then of later figures like Thomas Wentworth, Earl of Strafford, and Wentworth was the person who published basically the view in 1633. But then it also circulated very widely in London. So it influenced those who were, if you want, setting the agenda for Ireland in London. And then these ethnocentric ideas were basically adopted wholesale by English colonists going into the New World. And this is something, of course, the work of Nicholas Canney and D.B. Quinn has really shown us how, you know, the assumptions of paganism and savagery and, and barbarism were then applied to the indigenous peoples of the New World. But it's even more important to that, Miles, because this othering of the Irish, this dehumanisation as a means of control then persisted well into the 19th century and where we see these uh, representations of the Irish in America, especially as monkey-like. And then, of course, it permeated into Asia as well. So it's hard to overstate the sheer significance 
of Spencer as a foundational text as Cambrensis had been in the earlier period. So, I mean, it's one of those ones where I think it's a great example of Ireland as that laboratory for the creation of this ideology of racism. The President Higgins, I mentioned him in the introduction, obviously, he has used terms like ethical remembering and feigned amnesia. What do those terms in conclusion, what, what do they mean to you and how can they be applied to this topic of, of empire and remembering empire? Well, for me, I think what's important is that we do this, in again, in a very, very balanced and respectful way, that we absolutely acknowledge what happened. And it has to be driven here by empirical research. And this is where the work of you know, history is just beginning miles, because while we know a lot about the Irish in the context of the English, the Anglophone Empire, we still know very little about the Irish in the empires of France or Spain or Portugal. And I think, you know, the moment has come to really do deep research into what this means and that means identifying it documenting it and then trying to understand what it means in terms of identity uh, not just in the context of the 21st century but also in the context of the 16th 17th 18th 19th century and this is a journey for me that's just beginning but it does need to be a discussion that really is informed by empirical research and then one that people can engage with in a way that allows us to, you know, better understand. It's all about understanding uh, where we've come from so we can better understand who we are and above all where we're going, especially in the context of our shared futures. Well, those I think are the key words, empirical research, respect and understanding, uh, Jane. And the title of the Ford series of lectures by Jane Almira's Ireland Empire and the Early Modern World. If you haven't already watched them, I would highly uh, recommend them indeed. They're hosted right now at the rte.ie forward slash history. We'll put a direct link up on our own uh, website. Jane, it's been fascinating talking to you uh, about your work and about the Ford series of lectures. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the History Show. Thank you, Miles, for having me. It's been a privilege. After the break, how Belfast provided the backdrop for Harry Houdini's toughest escape attempt. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back. Almost a century after his death, the name Harry Houdini is synonymous with illusion, showmanship and death-defying feats. In the early 20th century, his escape stunts were a sensation. Audiences would watch in fascinated awe as he broke free of shackles while submerged in water or worked himself out of a straitjacket while suspended from a tall building. What you might not know is that the Hungarian-born escape artist has a few connections to Ireland. Our reporter, Mark McMenamin, has the story. Houdini was known far and wide as the greatest escapologist and illusionist that the world had ever seen. To heighten the realism of his performances, he'd asked people to build some kind of container around him, from which he would escape. In Belfast, the directors of Harland and Wolf Shipyard, sensing an opportunity for some publicity, challenged Houdini to his greatest escape attempt to date. 
This is historian Aaron Omwaini. It's one of the lesser known things about Houdini is that he has at least two links to Ireland and to Belfast uh, specifically. In January 1909, he appeared at Belfast's Hippodrome Theatre where the directors of Harland and Wolfe had him encased in a large sealed chest made from the same wood that they were using to build their latest liner, the ill-fated Titanic. This is magician and illusionist Rua, who himself is a massive Houdini fan. He performed in Belfast. There's also some evidence that shows he performed down in Cork, in the Opera House down in Cork, and he performed somewhere in Newry as well. And he travelled over, and part of his publicity stunts was always to say that anyone could build or encapsulate him in some kind of locking mechanism. You can build a box around me. He famously once escaped from the belly of a massive shark of some kind in the States. And the guys in the Harland and Wolfe shipyard heard about this and took this as a challenge and said, well, we could build a crate around Houdini to see could he escape from it. Houdini's escape from the dock of Harland and Wolfe was a huge draw for audiences. Performing to a a sellout crowd, Houdini offered £50 to anybody who could show that it was possible to live or breed within the construct once it was filled with water. So he got into this tank and was lowered into the chilly waters of Donegal Quay. He slipped out in less than two minutes, leaving the chest intact and drawing a, a rapturous applause from the attendant crowd. Houdini confided in his wife that the Belfast escape was the toughest of his career. Here, Ruo reads from Bess Houdini's diary. Of husky crews ambitious to construct packing cases to hold the escape artist, there was seemingly no end. Each fresh group of challengers seemed to think that their predecessors had not exercised sufficient vigilance. The toughest of these challenges was in Belfast, Ireland, where employees of the Harlan and Wolfe shipyards nailed up Houdini in a chest made of the timber which has been used in the construction of the Titanic. Houdini slipped out in a few minutes, leaving the chest intact and added Ireland to his list of conquests. Ladies and gentlemen, I take great pleasure in introducing my latest invention, the water Doctor Shell. That's the voice of Harry Houdini himself from 1914, uttering the introductory words to one of his most famous escape acts, the water torture cell. In this performance, a shackled Houdini was lowered upside down into a tank filled with water. $1,000 to anyone who can prove that it is possible to obtain air inside after The intrigue of trying to figure out how these illusions are undertaken and trying to work out how they're done uh, is something I think that certainly captivates modern audiences. And he will remain, on the basis of his his amazing feats at the time, somebody who, who continues to captivate audiences for a time to come. Speaking for all magicians... Houdini, he took magic from the kind of days of the wizards and what people believed to be wizardry and helped to bring it into the limelight and really give magic such an incredible name and a place as a serious art form. But not only that, he used to put his life on the line 
And he really sent this message to the working classes in America that you can achieve anything if you put your mind to it. So he was this superhero of performing arts, magic, and he was the everyman hero as well. And he really put magic on the map for a lot of us performers. And even today, when, when we still perform, people will still refer to Houdini, the great Harry Houdini and stuff like that. So his legend definitely lives on. Mark McMenamin was reporting there on Harry Houdini in Belfast, the city where he performed one of his most difficult feats of escapology. And Mark joins me now. Mark, you've been finding out more about Houdini's life and that performance in Belfast is not by any means his only link to Ireland. Tell me about the mysterious Inspector Melville. Well, I mean, there's a lot of connections that Houdini has with Ireland outside of what you've just heard. I suppose one of the most interesting is his connections with Inspector William Melville, who himself is a native or was a native of Sneem in County Kerry. Now, Melville was a British law enforcement officer and was the first chief of the British Secret Service Bureau. Uh, listeners maybe in England might know him better as the man who thwarted uh, an attempt on the life of Queen Victoria. He meets Houdini in 19. 19- and they become quite friendly uh, when Melville is working at Scotland Yard and uh, Houdini actually travels to Scotland Yard to kind of show off his skills as an escapologist. He releases himself from a, a set of police handcuffs owned by Melville and they befriend each other and he actually shows uh, Melville how to pick locks. So Houdini shows him how to pick locks. Now, the interesting thing about Melville is that he's involved in espionage and he's involved in uh, the special branch and kind of the running of spies. And there's some kind of evidence that he may or may not have got Houdini involved in spy work and espionage. Now, why might you ask, would he get Houdini involved? Well, Houdini was a very, very famous person at this particular period in time. He had access to people all over the world, royalty, celebrities, and he would have been in a great position to do some spy work for uh, Inspector Melville in Scotland Yard. Well, Melville, of course, goes on then to become M. He becomes the the head of the Secret Intelligence Service. So it's no, no doubt that uh, if he was going to recruit anybody, Houdini would be a great person to recruit. But one of Houdini's obsessions, as we know, was debunking and disproving the claims of psychics and, and mediums. And one of those, one of the most prominent of those, I think, was also in Ireland. Yeah, Houdini had a, a somewhat of a, an obsession of trying to disprove what he what he called charlatans, what he termed as people who were fake spirit mediums, who he felt, I suppose, were taking advantage of people who uh, who didn't know better. They would charge into these sort of seances, and and they would be able to tell people that they could speak to the dead. Now, one of the most famous of all of these was a girl named Kathleen uh, Gallagher or Gallagher, depending on your pronunciation. It's spelled G-O-L-I-G-H-E-R. And Kathleen uh, Gallagher or Gallagher was from Belfast. Uh, She's actually from the Holy Lands in Belfast. Now, her and her family claimed that she was able to communicate with the dead, to speak to the dead and communicate with spirits. And she was also able to uh, issue ectoplasm from her body okay or so to speak now the strange thing was that the gallagher family weren't charging into these seances but they had become extremely well known 
in England and Ireland because of them. You know, a casual look at the British newspaper database, if you look at the newspapers from the time, all over the United Kingdom and in Ireland, there's references to this family, to this Gallagher family. Now, this, of course, infuriated Houdini because it was something that he was very much against. And he and uh, a physicist named Edmund uh, Fournier de Albe, they went to investigate this. Now, the ruse was that they were using some muslin cloth tact as the ectoplasm that was issuing from uh, Kathleen Gallagher's body and because the kind of these seances were held in the dark what they soon discovered was that it was a piece of muslin cloth that was being controlled by her family members and there was this elaborate ruse going on in the dark and they were able to conceal it because of kind of it was so obscure and hard to see so he they disproved this and uh, it's one of many cases where Houdini is involved in disproving these fake mediums and charlatans as he calls them Now, he died in 1926 at the very early age of 52. Tell us what we know about his death and were there any Irish connections there? Well, it's very, very interesting. I suppose most people kind of associate his death with the water torture trick, which is not not true. That's not actually how he died. In his act, what he would do is he would invite somebody from the audience to come up and punch him in the stomach okay so he would claim that he could take a punch off any man and this would be part of the act and he would tense himself up and he would take the punch and he would absorb it and he would challenge people in the audience to do this and in 1926 on october 31st on halloween no less he made a similar challenge on stage and afterwards a gentleman came to the uh, the dressing room where he was laying out on kind of a chaise lounge and said to houdini basically you're the man that can take a punch from any man and before houdini had a chance to get up the man hit him three times in the stomach very 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 hard and uh, what it ended up doing was it ended up rupturing his appendix and he actually dies of peritonitis the infection from it on halloween night on 1926 now, the guy that uh, punched him in the stomach uh, runs away and disappears off into the night. But it comes out in later years that there is a connection to the spiritualist movement that Houdini had spent his his latter years trying to disprove. So there's a, there's a connection there. So we're not too sure how Houdini died. There's a school of thought that he, obviously he died of the punches in the stomach, but the causes for it. There's a school of thought that maybe it was the spiritualists getting their own back on him. Maybe it was connected to his uh, shady dealings with Inspector Melville and that he had seen too much and had been offed as a spy. Or maybe it was just a sad and tragic accident. I suppose we'll never really know. Indeed, we won't, Mark. Uh, Thanks for joining us this evening and sharing those details about the life and the enigmatic death of Harry Houdini, Mark McMenamin there. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.